All right, hear the word of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Lauren. Excuse me. Good evening, guys. Yeah, good to see you. Um, it is still evening, so uh, I want to thank you. I, I really, really do want to thank you for hanging in there with us. We're still in a bit of transition here with our facility, as you can tell, because we're still, like I said, it's still the evening uh, when we're gathering. But, uh, man, just praise God for all of you. Let me just say that really quickly, because I literally prepared, and maybe this just gives you a little insight into, into uh, my heart, but I prepared to stand up here and encourage you that even though attendance was low, that we needed to continue to gather together and preach and sing because the Lord is worthy of that. And then I look back while it goes, I'm singing, open my eyes, and I look, and these guys are rolling chairs out. Praise God, right? Like, that's an issue with me. So I'll confess sin to you from the pulpit, and now, now you can listen to me preach for 45 minutes. Let's do it. <laughs> money, money. Oh, uh, and uh, I'll confess this also. I forgot to release the student ministry. Um, so if you are in that number, Morgan Gantz, raise your hand, wave to the group. You guys can be, uh, be dismissed to go with Morgan uh, to student ministry. Thank you, Chacha. I appreciate that. Uh, my name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence, and it's, it's good to be back with you. As Brendan mentioned, he was out last week. He was on vacation. My wife and I and our family were out also. We were at the beach, uh, spent a few days doing spring break stuff, and, and it's always good to be able to get away with the family and spend that time, but it's always good to come back and plug in with the family of God. Like I love seeing you guys. Uh, we had a good time on our trip. Everyone came back and got sick immediately. Uh, by everyone, I mean all three children, and I woke up this morning with the sniffles too. So if I have avoided you today, it's because I don't want to infect you with my, uh, with my disease. So I'm going to do my best to get through this without sniffling too much into the microphone. Um, before we get going, let me, let me pray for us this morning before we jump into the scriptures and, uh, and see what the Lord has to say for us today. Father, we love you. God, we, we adore you, Father. God, I thank you that even in the midst of, of turmoil and, and trying time that you are still at work among us. And that we know that, God, we believe in that. And we hand these things over to you that we cannot control, God, and we ask you to do your will. God, thank you that we, can, that we have such a mighty God, that you are so mighty that we can lean into that, God. And we can trust you to be you no matter what is going on around us. God, we're so thankful for that. Father, I pray today that as we, as we get into your word, God, as we look at... Um, Look at the text that's before us today, God, the multiple scriptures that, as Brendan's already prayed for us, God, that you would open our eyes, God, that you would give us grace to be able to see, to understand what it is that you are laying out before us today. Father, I pray that, that you would take anything out of me that might be a hindrance to your message and your gospel going forward. God, let today be all about you. Uh, let us glorify you in everything that we do. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
So we are continuing forward in a series uh, called The Presence, The Power, and The People of God, where we're spending the next, I don't know, I think it's a total of 15 weeks, so we're at like week three or four or something. We're spending many more weeks moving forward studying the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Uh, we have, have covered some, some really good ground so far. I don't know if you guys had an opportunity to listen to Joseph's sermon from last week. If you didn't, I know we were kind of light with the traveling. Do me a favor and go back and listen to the podcast. What you're going to find when you hear it is that a lot of what he talked about last week is going to fold very nicely into a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight. So I, I would encourage you to go back and take a listen to that um, if you've got the opportunity to do that. So this morning, we're going to spend... More time talking about the, the role of the Holy Spirit, the theology of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, but we're going to focus in on what I believe to be one of the most significant things that the Holy Spirit is actively doing among us and among people, uh, the people of God, and that is we're going to talk, spend some time looking at the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration. Now, that, that's a $10 word. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in a meeting that we had where we talked about taking these, these large words and boiling them down because oftentimes we will assume that people are, you know, they've grown up in the church or they've been a part of the church or they've heard these terms over and over again, and a lot of times that's not true. So when I throw the word regeneration out, I, I want you to understand that if you're familiar with that term, that's great. You'll know what I'm talking about. If you are not familiar with that term, maybe you've been around the church or around believers long enough to have heard the term being born again. Those are interchangeable. Regeneration and new birth are interchangeable terms that I'm going to use interchangeably over the next 40 minutes as we kind of talk through this topic. So don't be confused by that. Though, when, when you hear, if you hear me say new birth or regeneration or being born again, I'm talking about the same thing in all of that. It's all coming back to the same subject matter. You may have even heard, if you've been in the church long enough or been around, that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. All right, that's a concept that we find in the book of 2 Corinthians, and that is true. We have new life in Christ, amen? Like, that's good. I told my wife at the beach last week, so we would go out early, like at 9 o'clock with the kids, and even though it was cold, we'd bundle up and we'd take them out before the crowds got there. Because if you've been at Crystal Beach, which is a cesspool anyway, but if you've been there over, y'all know the deal, man, y'all been there. If you've been there over spring break, you know it gets incredibly crowded. And one thing about spring break, or not spring break, one thing about Crystal Beach that you won't find in Galveston is that it's legal for people to drive on the beach. And if you've got a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a dog, you don't want to be running around on the beach as people are driving by. But occasionally there would be a kid, or you know, most of it was kids, that would be out at nine in the morning when we were there, just screaming in their trucks down the beach, text messaging with loud music. And at one point I looked at my wife and I said, I've got to make a declaration here. I said, you write this down. I said, the 35-year-old me hates the 17-year-old me. <laughs> hates that dude. Because she was like, oh, yeah, you used to do that. I was like, I know we used to do that, and I hate that guy. Like, I don't want to be like that anymore. I just want to survive. And it's things like that when they come up that I'm just so thankful that we have new life in Christ. Right? We have new priorities. We have new things that are driving us, and we're growing and maturing not only in our life, but in our faith also. So we don't want to take this sermon and legislate out the idea of new life, because we'll talk about that too as we press forward in the sermon series. But what I want to do today before we get too deep into this is draw a clear distinction for us between the work of the Holy Spirit and regeneration, which is the new birth, and what would happen after the new birth, which is new life. 
We have to understand that those are two completely separate things that have to be looked at differently because of the way that they matriculate and, and, and come through as we continue to grow in our relationship with Christ. We will often find ourselves considering new birth and new life to be the same thing. And what this does is it causes us to overlook the incredible work of the Holy Spirit in our new birth. If we just look at new birth or regeneration and say that's, really, that's just like a precursor to new life, we don't spend enough time really understanding the miracle of regeneration. <laughs> and it's incredible. And that's what we're going to get into today because what I believe is going to happen as we continue to look at the work of the Holy Spirit, particularly in these areas, what we're going to find is as we understand the goodness of God in doing these things for us and often in spite of us, what's going to happen in us is we will explode with worship for our king. Right? So let's don't overlook new birth just because we want to get to new life. It's the same, you know, we are physically born once, but every year we have a birthday. That doesn't mean that my wife gives birth to my children again every time they have a birthday, praise God, right? Because I can't handle it, and I'm selfish, so you know how that goes, but, um, but you know, she wouldn't be able to handle it either. So in the same way, we must separate new birth and new life and understand that they are different, even though our new life will often point us back and remind us of our new birth. Those things are interchangeable. It's important because regeneration in and of itself also should not be confused with the full experience of conversion. Because there is more after regeneration, right? We are not regenerated so that we can continue to go on with our old life. Like, that's not the way that this works. We are regenerated into new life so that we can continue moving forward and growing and becoming more like Christ as we grow in him and as his spirit becomes more active in our lives. So we are not regenerated to continue on with our old life, but we should not be so quick to expect new life without first experiencing the miracle of new birth. And I say that because it's important, because when I sit on the beach and I look at a 17-year-old kid driving down the beach fast with a cell phone and a cigarette and loud music, and I'm looking at him and I'm judging him and saying, there is no way there's anything good in that kid. The reason there may, and I don't know this kid, but I'm just using this as an example, but the reason there may not be anything good in that kid is because he was just like I was when I was 17 in the driver's seat of that truck driving down the beach. Prior to the Holy Spirit regenerating and giving me new birth, it led to new life. So it's important that we draw a distinction because it not only helps us understand what's going on with us, but it helps us deal with those around us that don't know the Lord. And so often we're just quick to say, those are problems I don't want. I don't want those people in my neighborhood. I don't want those people in our church. I don't want them in my home group. I don't want them in class with my kids. I don't want them teaching my kids. I don't want, and what we miss in that is that these are people that are not, have not been regenerated. They have not been born again. They have not started a new life. And what I'm hoping to build a case for today is the understanding that the Lord wants to do that work. And he wants to invite us into that work, right? So without getting too far ahead of myself, let's, understand, like I said, the distinction between new birth and new life and kind of use that as we continue to move forward. And that, that's why a lot of times, well, I just got really dark in here. Uh, you should have hit that right when I talk about Nicodemus coming in the dark in a minute. We should have smashed the lights. But we didn't, we didn't you know, I didn't time it right. That, that's why so often you'll hear us stand in this pulpit and we'll place 
heavy emphasis on our, our brokenness or our sinfulness, and we'll place heavy emphasis on that prior to our coming to know Christ, that many people would say, why do we continue to emphasize the sinfulness of man? Don't you know that we are a new creation in Christ? And to that, I would say to you, yes, but. There is still, there is still reason to emphasize this brokenness, and I pulled two out. The first one is clearly because the Scripture does. Like, we can't not emphasize it because it is clearly emphasized in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, which is one of the texts we'll go to later to spend more time, so don't worry about flipping there. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says this. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So it's important enough for Paul to draw that out and apply that, and that's not the only place that he does it. We'll look at a couple of more as we go through. And we'll have more on this passage later, but Scripture often will make a point to remind us of our state prior to salvation. So we cannot overlook that as being an important element of our salvation, is understanding who we were to understand who we now are and why we are now who we are and by whose power we got to that place. Secondly, the second reason why we must emphasize our brokenness is, as I said earlier, I believe that by understanding who we were prior to salvation, we become even more awestruck and thankful for God's kindness in saving us, in, in, in making us his, in bringing us into his family. We can't really understand the gravity of that until we understand how separated we were from God by our nature by our action, by the things that have taken place, not just with us, but that have been imputed to us from Adam, from Genesis 3 and the fall of man. There is a separation there. And when we understand it, when we understand the severity of it, we become more awestruck and thankful for God's kindness in saving us. And step one of that salvation is Holy Spirit wrought regeneration or new birth that, we, that we'll be discussing this morning for the next couple of minutes. So um, these, this is a, these are important topics, and they're very important within understanding who the Holy Spirit is and how he, act, how he operates, because what we'll see from the Scripture today is that the Holy Spirit is the catalyst. He is the one that brings new birth to the believer. It is, it is him, it, it is he that does that work. So by discussing new birth, we're going to begin to see what it is that empowers us for new life. In Christ, so that's the that's the link there. New birth and what what a, a case that Paul lays that Paul lays out that we'll see later in the book of Titus empowers us for the new life that we are now called to live in in Christ Jesus and in in our salvation as we move forward. So the first person we hear in the Scripture speak of the new birth is Jesus in John chapter three. If you could turn there, Lauren read it earlier, but that's kind of where we'll sit down for a minute, and then I'll direct you to the other passages as as we. As we have need. So John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, I'm going to read this to you. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So here's Jesus approached by this man named Nicodemus. What we know about Nicodemus is that he was a, he was a Pharisee. Right, And what we know about Pharisees is they were dedicated to keeping the letter of the law, and they were often opposed 
to Jesus and to his ministry. They were also denounced regularly by Jesus. Like there's, Jesus would use terms like brood of vipers to talk about these guys because of their legalism. He was not happy with them. He did not think they were cute. He did not like the way that they operated. He often went after them full bore. So here we see Nicodemus um, approaching Jesus, and he wouldn't be the most likely candidate to do that and to be asking questions. Um, and like I said earlier, when the, you know, this would have been perfect to do this now when the lights went out. But in verse 2, we see that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. He approached him at night times. There's a couple of reasons that this is significant. The first is everything that I said earlier about Nicodemus and Jesus probably not jiving would be one reason why he would approach him at night. He would want to do this under the cover of darkness. But another interesting thing that I found as I was kind of studying this text is that most all the commentaries that I looked at agreed that this was also symbolic in showing that Nicodemus, even though he was legalistic, even though he knew the law, even though he was a Pharisee, was a man that was walking in darkness. So, so we, we see this, we see that this unbelievable base of knowledge in this scripture, most commentaries would agree, would not necessarily testify to the fact that he knew Christ. And you can see that in the scripture because he clearly doesn't know who it is that he's talking to when he's questioning, when he's questioning Jesus. So in verse 2, as I said, Nicodemus refers to Jesus as a teacher come from God, and he even acknowledges that God might be with him. So there's a clear misunderstanding of who Jesus is here with Nicodemus, and he continues referring to Jesus as someone God is using rather than God in the flesh. So this is important for us to understand, particularly before we start looking at the words of Jesus in this passage, that there was a fundamental misunderstanding in the mind of a Pharisee, a man that knew the law, a man that knew the scriptures, a man that led the church. There's a fundamental misunderstanding in his mind about who Jesus is as he approached Jesus is here. And Jesus is about to, about to correct him, and we'll see this here in verses 3 through 6. Listen, listen to what I say here. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So Nicodemus comes and he asks Jesus whether he is a, a teacher, whether he is someone that God is clearly with. And Jesus answers the question that Nicodemus didn't even ask. Like this is kind of, kind of the way Jesus operated. He answers a question that he didn't even ask him, but the answer that he gave him was the answer that he truly needed. In that moment, he tells him, unless you are born again, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is spoken about often throughout the Gospels. Throughout all, all the Gospels, you'll see many, many times. Now, this is the only time it comes up in the book of John. But in the other accounts, continuously over and over, they speak of the kingdom of God. And there are various meanings depending on the context and the passages of Scripture when they speak about it. But there's two definitions I can levy. One that's very broad when we're talking about the kingdom of God and one that's a little more narrow. And the broad definition is that the kingdom of God spoken about in Scripture is referring to the rule of an eternal sovereign God over all of the universe. So the kingdom of God, that which God rules, which we believe to be literally everything. Like there is nothing outside of the control of a sovereign God who rules over all of it. It's a very broad definition of 
the kingdom of God. But as I said, you can boil this down, particularly for this conversation with Nicodemus, and create a, more, a little more narrower definition of what the kingdom of God means. And that narrow definition would be a spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of those who willingly submit to God's authority. So there is, when Jesus says to Nicodemus that unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God, there's two meanings there. There is, hey, if you are not born again, you cannot even see, begin to understand God's sovereign authoritative rule over everything, nor, unless you're born again, can you truly submit to God's authority in your life. Because why? As we said earlier, there is an innate issue with us from birth, and it's called sin. And if we are not born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, if we are not regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and made new, that will always hinder our ability to see the kingdom of God. Joe talked about this last week, about the Holy Spirit being the power that even opens our eyes to understand who Christ is. Jesus is saying the same thing. Like he's saying the same, like that word see, if you go back to the Greek, it literally translates to see with the eyes, to see with the mind, to perceive or to know. Literally, without the new birth, you cannot even understand the kingdom of God. You can't understand God. You can't understand Jesus. You can't understand the Holy Spirit. Praise God that we understand. Right? Hmm. According to the teachings of Jesus, without this work of the Holy Spirit and regeneration or new birth, it is impossible for Nicodemus or by proxy us to even comprehend God's sovereign rule over the universe or his authority in our lives. Now, this is a major, <laughs> this is a major conflict, like what we would call a crisis of belief for Nicodemus. Because listen to how he answers in, in verse 4. He says, Hey, man. He doesn't say, hey, man. I said that. He says, <laughs> he's, that's what I would have said. What? He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus answers this by, by saying exactly what probably we would say if we had been hit with this for the first time. Probably what we should have said when we were hit with this for the first time. But I've been hearing born again since I was a kid in Bible school. That's second nature. It wasn't until I was was an adult and thought, what exactly does that mean that I really began to consider what it means to be born again? Like, I thought it was just a formality, some title that we have listed to some sort of transaction that takes place at the front of a pulpit on a Sunday morning after service, and it's not. The work of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you don't even know that it's happening when it happens. You don't even know because the Holy Spirit is just doing his work because he's good and he is God and he loves us. Jesus responds after Nicodemus says, hey, how can I be born when I'm old? Should I reenter my mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says this in verses 6 and 7. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is the Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus 
Jesus' response to him is, is, is interesting for him to say that, that, let me go back up a little bit. Into, I've read the wrong verses there, I'm sorry. I'll go back up a little bit. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus' response to him is, is something that, that to us might seem a bit confusing, but it shouldn't have been confusing to Nicodemus. It shouldn't have been foreign to him. Joe referenced these scriptures last week, but I need them again for this. I'm going to jump back into them. Um, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27 says this. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanlinesses. And from your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So Jesus, when he says that unless you are born of water and the capital S spirit, understand that that's what's going on here also, that you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's this idea that you have to be reborn again to see the kingdom of heaven, but yet you have to be born of water and the spirit to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus would have known exactly what Jesus was speaking of. He would have been referencing those verses in Ezekiel chapter 36. So when Jesus tells Nicodemus, hey, man, you have to be born of water and the Spirit to in- enter the kingdom of God. He's paralleling a promise that God made through the prophet Ezekiel to the Israelites who at the time had been exiled from the promised land. Right, And they had been exiled as God's judgment for their rebellion and idolatry. Yet God here in Ezekiel 36 is promising to put his spirit within them. And cleanse them, not for their own glory, but for the glory of God. So this is what we see God doing. And in doing this, in God adding his spirit to them, they would be returned to the promised land. Now, walk that back to where we are in John chapter 3, and we see Jesus taking the same thing and using it to speak to Nicodemus. And as I said earlier, by proxy, us, a people who have been exiled from the garden, a people who have been exiled from the kingdom of God due to our rebellion and our idolatry demonstrated through the sin of our first father, Adam. And he says, if you are born again by water and the spirit, it is then that you can enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is building this parallel, and it's through the power of the Holy Spirit in regeneration and new birth that we, too, can be returned to unity with God. We, too, can experience new birth so that we might once again commune with God. Praise God for that, right? Like, that is wonderful news, and that's what he's trying to explain to Nicodemus here. And finally, here in John chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, the scripture says this. It says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus, is, he makes this last statement in this passage that almost seems unnecessary. Like it almost seems like, why did you say that? Because that's a little confusing. Like why would you say those things? And in this last statement that Jesus makes, I believe, and in most commentators agree, stands to highlight the sovereignty of God in regeneration. The understanding that we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, as I said earlier, without any works from us provided for that regeneration. But yet, the Holy Spirit does it because God is gracious. And he does it because he 
wants to open our eyes to the truth of the gospel. He wants to open our eyes to the truth of the scripture. And the Lord does this. Jesus says the wind blows. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it goes. And then he says at the very end, he says, so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. We recognize the wind, right? We can hear the wind, but we don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it goes. And Jesus says, this is what it's like for everyone who's born of the Spirit. What this means for us is that those of us who have experienced new birth, we were not actively seeking new birth when we experienced it, yet there is a God through his Holy Spirit that is actively pursuing us. And when that transaction takes place, it comes by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it comes in the timing of the Lord. But when it happens, new birth happens to us, maybe sometimes before we even know that we have experienced new birth. Because some of us don't even realize we've experienced new birth until we begin experiencing new life. We say, man, my desires are changing. I must be saved. No, you were saved when you had terrible desires. God has worked that out in you. Praise God. Praise God for that. That is such good news for us because if left to our own devices to figure this out on our own, let me, let me assure you, we would not do very well with this. We wouldn't do very well. Look back at what Ephesians 2 says and see how Paul speaks of us prior to new birth. I'm going to read that Ephesians 2, 1 through 2 again and actually ask you to flip there if you don't mind. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That word dead that Paul says there that he uses is, literally means that you were a corpse. Like it doesn't mean that you were on life support but yet had the ability to think and kind of reason things out and consider. It literally means Paul is saying that you're not kind of in bad shape. You're not a little sick like my kids are right now. You are literally a corpse. And here's what we know about corpses. They don't seek life. They're dead. They're dead. And this is what Paul is communicating to us. Therefore, we have a tendency to put our faith in seeking God and use it as a precursor to Holy Spirit wrought new birth. And that that is an error. Regeneration always happens before faith happens. It always happens. And it happens because God is gracious enough to do that for us. He's gracious enough to seek us. He's gracious enough to know our name before the day we step foot on the earth. He's gracious enough to know that we are his before we enter the womb. He is gracious to save, and he does it apart from anything that we can do to earn it or make it happen. He does it on his own, and he does it for us because he's good. Because he is good. Listen, listen to Paul as he has explained our spiritual condition in our death and our, our necros is the word literally a corpse. Paul has explained this. And then we look what he says in verses 4 through 8 in Ephesians chapter 2. And I grew up in Southern Baptist youth ministry. So every time somebody read this, they said, hey, this is the biggest butt in the Bible. You don't think that was funny? That was hilarious when I was a kid. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4, the biggest butt in the Bible. But God, listen to Paul, listen to Paul, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, necros, same word, corpse, dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved 
And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Because why? So that no one may boast in our works as our means for salvation. This is God. This is our God. And he did this for us. But God, rich in mercy, because of his great love, even when we were dead, when we were corpses and had no ability to respond, he made us alive. He raised us up. He seated us with him in heavenly places. Why? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Not that we might be glorified, but that he might be glorified. His glory, his fame, that we, the corpses, would reflect the love of God. Not so that we might be platformed, but so that others would know the love of God and others might be saved. Why? So that that glory might continue to increase. This is the beauty of salvation. It is not by us, but it is for us. It is for us, but it's not for us. It's for the glory of God. This is why there, there is a great commission, right? Not because we need to go out and check all these, these boxes, because you, but because the great commission exists so that God's glory might be spread to the ends of the earth. Like, that's what Jesus is proclaiming. The glory of God to the ends of the earth and the vessel that he chooses by which to spread that glory is us. And he does it in spite of us because why? Paul said we were corpses apart from the loving grace of God that found us and saved us and made us alive. That's wonderful news, friends. I pray, God, I pray that that actually stirs something in your heart because if it doesn't, I am afraid that you are necros, dead. And I pray that if that is not stirring something in your heart, that you will consider whether or not you know Christ. And those aren't, man, those are not easy words to say. But I tell you guys, I read this stuff and I cannot, I cannot not get excited about this news. This is wonderful news. And, and the reason being is because we have not skipped over who we once were. We have not skipped over our helplessness. We have not immediately applied and said, we made it, you know, we kind of stepped forward and did something here. Therefore, we are experiencing new life. No, man, we look back and say, we are broken and separated from God, from birth, but God being rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. Praise God. It's great news. I hope, that, I hope that churns something in you, friends. I don't even know where I am in my notes. But here's the thing. So we've talked a little bit about regeneration being brought on by the Holy Spirit's work in the heart of dead men and women. But I want to be clear on something because I don't want to, I don't want to have to return hate mail all week. Faith is still part of the equation. Amen? 
Like it says it. We have been saved by grace. So grace comes first through faith. And Paul says, hey, not of your own doing. And the reason it's not of your own doing is because I don't want you to boast. But don't act like, let's don't act like faith isn't an element here also. And here's the thing about that faith. That faith is our faith. That is an actionable faith that we have been called to put into action by following Christ in obedience every day with everything that we have. So don't confuse all. Don't get convoluted on this thing. Understand, God is doing the saving. God is doing the regenerating. God is doing all of these things. The Holy Spirit is doing his work. Jesus is doing his work. But in the middle of it, there is an element by which we must exercise faith. And what we see in Romans chapter 12 is that that faith that we do have has been apportioned to us, or as the ESV says, assigned to us by God. So there's an actionable element to our faith, but we also understand that that faith has been given to us as a gift from God. And he's given it to us so that we might put it into work. So let me ask you this. If God is the assigner of faith, are we spending enough time praying and asking him to give us more faith? I'm not. Sometimes I'm spending more time praying that this week that my kids will get well. Or more time praying that, that you know, these practical things in life. But more often than not, I'm not on my knees begging with God to give me more of that which I know he gives me to action for his glory. God, give us faith. Help our unbelief. Like root out the areas where we truly don't believe. I struggle with unbelief all the time. If you don't believe me, call my wife tonight and say, hey, tell me, how does Corey do with unbelief? She's going to go, oh, man. Like I've talked that dude off the ledge three times a week. He just forgets about the goodness of God, and I do, because I struggle with unbelief. But praise God that Romans 12 tells me that the faith that I need to overcome that is apportioned to me by who? That same God that regenerated me without my knowledge. Praise God, man. This is, this is so incredibly important for us to understand. It's so incredibly important for two reasons. The first one, as I said earlier, we need to be constantly reminded of the gloriousness of God to lavish such kindness upon us. We need to be constantly reminded of that. That our understanding of our salvation and how it comes to pass and what we did to earn it versus what God did to give it, that should lead to lives that overflow and are continually worshiping God in all that we do, not just when we're in here on Sunday morning or Sunday evening. It's... it's People will say your theology, what you know about God or what you understand about these things we're talking about, should lead to your doxology. So in, in, to bring those terms down a little bit, your theology, what we understand about God, should lead to a deeper, richer worship of who God is. Like this is how, the, this is how these things play together. It's literally the difference between attending a worship service because we should and coming to actually worship. I don't know, I've been a part of, of, of multi, lots of different types of worship services. I've been a part of those where most people there have come to attend worship because my spouse wants me there. You know, I'm a good dad, so I take my kids to church to make sure that they're raised in church and so they'll be good moral people when they get older. And I've also been a part of worship services where people show up because they understand these things and they are worshiping the risen King Jesus. And there is a distinct difference in those two things. There is a distinct difference. And the difference, what changes in us that lets this morph from an attendance 
a worship service attendance to an actual worship of God is understanding the things of God that allow our heart to overflow with worship for him. That's the difference. And the second reason this is important for us to understand is to empower us to do the work of God in the world through what Paul calls in Ephesians 2, the next verse, verse 10, good works which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. If our theology informs our doxology, then our doxology will inform the way we live our lives. If we are a people who worship, and we truly worship with every ounce of our life and in everything that we do, good works are not something you have to work really hard to do. Like, they are just happening because it's part of being a worshipful human being that loves the Lord and understands these things about God. Here at Providence, we call it head, heart, hand. Maybe you heard that. So what we, what we believe in our head will carry over and overflow in worship from our heart. And when our heart overflows with worship, our hands, they go and they begin to do the work of God in the world. This is what we are talking about here. And that's the second reason why it's so incredibly important to understand this. Make one more scripture flip with me. And I'm going to do this really quickly and start closing. Look, Titus chapter 3. We're going to sit down for just a minute in verses 1 through 8. So while you're turning there, I'll read them to you, and then we'll go through them verse at a time. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish. Here he goes again. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hatred by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, here it is, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So, as with all of Paul's letters, this one is written meaning to be read to the church. So he writes directly to Titus. The understanding is that this is a letter to Titus, but it's also a letter that Titus would read uh, to the church there where, that he was overseeing in Crete. So Paul's purpose in writing this letter was to instruct Titus on how to organize the church there. What I, the research I did said he was instructing Titus on how to organize the believers. So he was building, kind of getting an organization put together about how, how it is that this church should be led. And it's a very short letter. And Paul gives Titus exactly three things in this letter, three major themes that he should focus on. The first one is the qualification of elders. So it's not like, hey, you should think about appointing elders. That's kind of a good thing. It's a given that elders will be appointed. And Paul's interested in ensuring that they're qualified men. They're leading that church. So that's number one. The second, Paul gives Titus the direction to ensure that he's teaching sound doctrine. So hold fast to sound doctrine. He tells them don't hesitate to rebuke false teachers. And then the third one that I think it's so important for us to pull this one to the front and understand that Paul highlights these three things because this one is obviously of utmost importance to him. The third one is Paul is instructing Titus on how to teach believers to be ready for every good work. How to teach believers and organize and structure believers to be ready for good works. And he starts in verse 1 and 2 saying, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, 
to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So he begins this discourse on teaching believers to be ready for every good work by setting a pretty high bar. Right, like if we're honest with one another and if we're honest with ourselves, we would probably um, say that we fail daily at that list of things. I know that one that I struggle with daily because I, I, I get up, I'll get up in the morning, I'll go to my job and I'll sit in my office and I'll take direction from, I've got like, it feels sometimes like there's a hundred people that I'm working for. It really does. I'm like, I've got like, I'm supporting a work group with a bunch of different supervisors and then supervisors above them and, and it feels crazy sometimes and when I think about being submissive to rulers and authorities like I think of this and I go man sometimes that's hard because sometimes I tell one of them I say I don't know you need to go talk to the other one he just told me to do something different you guys get together and figure it out and then come back and let me know like being submissive to rulers and authorities like Paul is saying that's of utmost importance and we struggle with these things we struggle with them but in verses three through seven here Paul gives us the key to living as one who has experienced new birth and therefore lives new life. Let me read it again, three through seven. He says, For we ourselves were once again, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hatred by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He emphasizes sinfulness again to set up the good news. And there's another really big but there, conveniently in verse 4 again, so you can see that. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, of God our Savior appeared. So he says, when Jesus appeared. That's what he's talking about there. The goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared. He saved us, right? He saved us, not because of our works, but because of his mercy. And how did he save us? Look at the second half of, of five and into verse six. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So there it is. Paul says we were saved, we were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and then we were renewed for new life. It goes back to what we talked about earlier, those being two separate, equally awe-inspiring things that God has done in us and for us in order to save us. Paul makes that clear there. And then he tells us again in verse 7 that God did it all for his glory. But woven within that is an invitation to become a member of the family of God. Look at verse 7. This is incredible. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You guys are familiar with what an heir is, right? And I'm not going to go too far down this road because I believe it's April 8th. I'm preaching a sermon on the Holy Spirit being the spirit of adoption. So I don't want to like dig too deeply here because of it, I'll probably just have to repeat it all in a couple of weeks. But at the end of the day, God has not just saved us so that we might make it maybe on our own. God has saved us so that we can be a part of his family, so that we might be called sons and daughters of God. 
We are heirs to that which we do not deserve to be heirs to. I have a seven-year-old adoptive son that was born in Russia, and my wife and I did the work and went over there by God's grace and picked him up and brought him home. You know what that kid never did? He never picked up the phone and called me and said, hey, man, can you come adopt me? Never happened. You know who did that? God did that. God did. We didn't do it. We're not God. I got tricked early on in the process of thinking that I was somehow God in the equation. I was going to save Jonah, and the Lord, about halfway through it, smacked me on the top of the head and said, Brother, you're a vessel. I was doing this with or without you, but praise God, you're on board. <laughs> right? Spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit. God has not just saved us from the consequences of hell. That's a part of it. But that's not his primary role in saving us. It is so much greater than that. He saves us to make us a part of his family. Because he loves us. We are his children. This is great. And we are heirs to everything that is his as though we belonged in the family in the first place. Mm. Lord, that's good. Verse 8, Paul says, This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good work, good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul, after going through everything that he just said, he instructs, make sure that you are insisting on these things. Make sure that we are insisting on the truth of the gospel. Make sure, as we see in verse 3, we're insisting on our sinful and broken nature prior to our new birth. The goodness and loving kindness of God appearing in Jesus that we also see in verse 3. We are insisting that God saved us, not based on our works, but because of his mercy, like we see in verse 5. We are insisting that this happened by regeneration and renewal from the Holy Spirit, as we see in verse 5. We are insisting that this has been poured out on us through Jesus, as we see in verse 6. Now, we are insisting that because of this, we are now sons and daughters of God and heirs to all that is his, as we see in verse 7. And why should we insist on these things? Look at the second half of verse 8. Paul says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Friends, it is our reflection upon the work of God in our salvation that not only drives us to worship, but drives us to good works. Drives us to worship through the way that we use our hands through the things that we put our hands to. Our theology will lead to doxology or our lack of theology will lead to a lack of doxology. We often forget this. And this is the reason why so many of us, including myself, don't hear me preaching at you. This is, this is me. Why so many of us suffer from burnout in serving the Lord, or so many of us find ourselves serving the Lord out of pure obligation. Well, why are you doing that? Because I'm supposed to. I have to do it. You know, we can boil it down and make it common. Why are you serving in baby bees? Because I have to. They tell me I have to to be a member here. i got to serve. Or we could do it in the world. Corey, why are you spending time in the lunchroom talking about God with that guy? Well, because I have to. Because God says, you know, Jesus says in Matthew 20, I've gospel to the end of the earth. We often find ourselves struggling with that because we are serving the Lord out of obligation rather than out of 
doxology that creates good works because we understand the lengths that God went to to bring us into his family. And furthermore, we actually care about seeing other people being brought into the family of God. Like it's become such a blessing for us that we want someone else to have that blessing. I know it sounds so cliche. People say, well, if you've seen a good movie, you'll tell your friends about a good movie, right? And I always will, I hear that stuff and I'm like, Ugh, don't Jesus juke me with this nonsense, you know? But the reality is if that were held by us as a precious jewel, the fact that we've been adopted into the family of God and we are now heirs, the people that are around us, particularly the people that we already love because they're with us and those that we come in contact with, we would be really anxious to share that precious jewel with them and say, hey, I know how you can also get one of these, right? right? By the power of God, we share the gospel because of that. See, the danger in serving out of obligation or compulsion is that our good works are only considered eternal by God if we do them out of a heart of worship. They are only considered eternal by God if they, they overflow from a heart of worship. So if you are trudging through Christian service because you are hoping for jewels in your crown when you get to heaven, my hope for you, friend, is that you understand that our reward in heaven will first and foremost come because we have led a life of worship, not because we worked really hard. And here's the thing about those crowns that we'll often find ourselves pursuing. The scripture also tells us we will cast every one of them down at the feet of Jesus Christ. So if he is not enough for you in your current state, no crown is going to be enough for you either because that crown will be fodder to the glory that is God when we get to heaven and when we see him. That crown will be nonsense. It will be cast away at the feet of Jesus. Praise God. Praise God for his mercy in regenerating us before we even had faith to believe, praise God for the work of the Holy Spirit doing this in us despite, despite us, in spite of us. He loves us enough to do that. Paul says that our catalyst towards good, God-glorifying works will be rooted in remembering our helpless state before God and his grace in extending salvation to us. I'm going to begin closing with this. <coughs> apologize. I literally made it through the whole thing without coughing into the microphone. Here's the thing, guys. This subject matter oftentimes is, maybe it's debated. Maybe it's confusing. Maybe we don't always agree on it. My hope, and what I've prayed for the last couple of weeks as I've prepared this, is that what this would be for us as the family of God here at Providence, this would be subject matter that is celebrated by us and not resisted by us. That we would join together as a people that celebrate God for his goodness in our salvation. We would celebrate God for his goodness in the salvation of our children and our friends and our parents and our coworkers and anybody who comes here, anybody who's been saved here, anybody who gets saved at the church down the street, praise God. I heard a guy the other day, he said, he literally said, and coming off the heels of our revival series, it was interesting, he literally said you can really tell the churches that truly care and are truly praying for revival because they don't care if it happens in their church or the one down the street. Praise God for revival at Humble Area First Baptist, right? Praise God for revival at Northeast Praise God for revival at Higher Expectations or Christ Church North. That is not a prayer just for us so that we can be glorified because what did we just read? It's not because of our works so that we don't boast. God lavishes that upon those 
whom he sees fit to lavish it upon. And I would pray that we would pray for that for everyone. Paul says that this is meant to be celebrated. We should celebrate this. And it's this understanding, what we talked about today, that our salvation is from God by the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ that frees us to do the work of God prepared for us beforehand with a worshipful disposition. And here's the thing. Whether you are a believer in this room, and I know there's believers here, whether you're not sure if you're a believer, Joe says this all the time, and I love it, so I'm going to parrot him. Whether you're not sure that you are a believer here today, and I know that there are people that are conflicted, or whether you absolutely know that you are not a believer, and I believe that there are people here that absolutely know that they are not a believer here today, my hope for us today is that the truth of who Christ is and his kindness toward us would wipe out confusion and indifference among every single one of us. I pray that if there are people here, as I said earlier, that are working hard to please God, they are working hard to earn what they think it is that they cannot or have not earned, that we would lay that down today, that we would thrust our belief upon Christ, we would thrust our trust upon the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, and we would move forward in faith that God has apportioned us, and we would apply it so that we might serve God for His glory, because we are children of His. We are heirs. There are also those of us here today who are regenerate, who have experienced new life, but we have lost our fervor for worship. We are going through the motions. We are trudging through life. We are forgetful of the goodness of God in saving us and his worthiness for every breath of our lives to praise his name. We have forgotten the magnitude of that. I have prayed and I will continue to pray that God, because he is rich in mercy, has opened your heart and your eyes to the magnitude of his goodness and salvation. And that we respond here shortly in worship when Brendan leads us in the next couple of minutes, that we do so in such a way that we try with everything that we have to make our worship worthy to be laid down before our king that has done amazing things in order to save us. I pray that we would remember our destitute position prior to regeneration, that we would acknowledge God's work in new birth and his work in giving us whatever faith we may have to continue on. So what I'm going to do right now is ask you to stand before Brendan comes up. ask you to stand up. I'm going to pray over us, and then I'm going to turn it over to Brendan to lead us in, in worship. God, we need you so badly to remind us, God. We need you so badly through your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit to remind us of who you are, to remind us of who you say we are in you and why it is that we are that. God, I, I pray that, that your word, Father, that your, your scripture, God, that that which you have given us, as Joe said last week, to, to lead us and to guide us, and to point us back toward you as your revelation for us, God, that that which went forward today would fall on fertile hearts, my God. That those who have forgotten the marvelous nature of salvation would be reminded, and that we would be reminded that the regeneration that began it all was from the Holy Spirit through his power and had literally nothing to do with us. God, let that bring us to our knees in submission before a holy, sovereign God that saw fit to reach down from the heavens and pluck us out of death. God, remind us, Father, 
Remind us of your goodness. God, this morning as you, can, as you pursue people that I know are in this room that you are pursuing, Father, would you, would you, would you save people here that don't know you? I know you are. I know I can't control it. It feels weird to even ask you to do it because I know you're doing it, but I want to be faithful to ask you because your scripture says I can. God, will you save people who are here? God, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to, to feel how you love us. God, let us look back over the years of our lives and let us see the fruit of the Spirit emanating in our lives. God, in spite of us, let us see it. Make it clear to us so that we might not marvel about how good we are or the gifts that we've got or the way we bless the church or the way we lead our home groups or the way we lead our families, but that we might marvel at you and your goodness. God, we love you. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.